right, let's take our Bibles, please, and let's open them to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, verses 11 through 26. Matthew 27, 11 through 26. Now, since I had to preach the announcements, you're going to have to listen really fast this morning because we got a lot of ground to cover. We're winding down in the book of Matthew. We're winding up to the crescendo in Matthew's gospel. The main event of the cross and the resurrection is everything that Matthew's gospel is about. Now, we started this in what is known in the, in the gospel of Matthew as the passion narratives. Jesus with his disciples in the upper room sharing the last Passover meal. He announces to his disciples that one of them is a betrayer. His name is Judas. Before that meal is over, Judas excuses himself to go out to meet with the chief priests and the leaders of the people. Jesus takes the 11 disciples out of the upper room, across through the town of Jerusalem and up over the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives as he teaches them and instructs them and tells them what's coming and prays over them and prays for them. And then he comes to this place called the Garden of Gethsemane and he brings the 11 inside the garden. Then he takes three of them, Peter, James, and John, further into the garden so that he can pray. And he asks them to keep watch. An agonizing time of prayer culminates in a crescendo of Jesus triumphantly coming out of his final season of prayer, ready for the cross, just as Judas and the temple guard and all the the rabble come to arrest Jesus there in the garden. Jesus is arrested. He's whisked away to some mock trials. Peter and the rest of the disciples scatter. Peter begins to follow at a distance. A slave girl thinks that he's one with Jesus and he denies him vehemently, fulfilling Jesus' prophecy. Judas, seeing what has gone on, goes out and hangs himself. And now we have a very early morning scene where Jesus is now being ushered into the presence of the Judean governor named Pontius Pilate. It's early in the morning and our text opens with Jesus standing in the presence of this tyrannical, anti-Semitic Roman ruler. Follow as I read, beginning in verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, His wife sent him a message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two of you do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. They shouted all the louder, crucify him. Then Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but had instead an uproar was 
but, but instead an uproar was starting. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, let his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Wow. Well, this is a curious text. It's curious in a couple of ways, but let me just kind of build the background just a little bit. Can you believe it? Here, the, ro- the ruler of Rome, the one who represents Rome, the governor of Judea, finds himself standing toe-to-toe with the ruler of the universe. This little judge who thinks he has the power to judge the one and only true judge of the entire universe. Pilate's reputation as a ruler was anything but stellar. He was an abusive, harsh, rude, uncaring, anti-Semitic ruler who loved to agitate and bring misery to the Jewish people under his charge. His headquarters, out at Caesarea Maritime on the coast, rarely brought him into Jerusalem only when there were these big feast celebrations where the, ta- where the city of Jerusalem swelled with pilgrims from all over and where in this city insurrectionists and political troublemakers found their way. And it was here that Pilate officially meets Jesus. Now, how much Pilate actually knew about Jesus before this moment is debatable. Perhaps he had heard of him, but as far as we can tell, there was no previous exchange or personal connection that that Pilate had with Jesus prior to this moment. Now, keep in mind that Pilate's reputation was known for abusing the Jewish people. The Jews hated Pilate for what he stood for, occupying their sacred land, And the Jews hated Pilate for that, but but Pilate hated the Jews for being a pebble in his shoe everywhere he walked in Judea. What's curious about this text, and the reason I build all that, is because it almost seems like, would you agree, that Pilate seems to be here wanting to release Jesus. He doesn't want to come down and follow the the, the, the party line of the Jewish leaders to have Jesus executed. It's like he's trying to back out of this very delicate situation. He really doesn't want to come down on who Jesus is, and he doesn't really want to have to deal with him. Now, I, I think there are a lot of folks like Pilate today, people who somehow want to take themselves off the hook for having anything to do with Jesus. I've met people like this. I've met them in conversations about spiritual things. I've met them when they've come uh, to, to me with questions, and I begin talking about how Jesus has changed my life, and suddenly the shade starts going down, and it's as if people want to sort of back out. They don't want to come down on who Jesus is, and they're really not sure what to do with Jesus. And so people, I find, like Pilate, oftentimes uh, work out a certain sort of uh, Uh, mentality that keeps them in this state of, I don't want to deal with Jesus. Now, that may be somebody here today. It might be somebody in your family. It might be somebody that you know, someone that you work with, someone that you've been sharing with, the gospel. But there's people all over like Pilate who, when confronted with Jesus, really don't know what to do. And they drop back to the reluctance of, of of wanting to excuse themselves from feeling responsible for having to say anything 
with clarity about who he is. Uh, what I want to do in this text this morning is I want to present what I think are four uh, root causes for why people stay sort of uh, at an arm's length with Jesus. And, and this is going to identify people that we know in our lives, maybe identify some of where we are today as well. And we're going to go really quick. In fact, I'm going to have to cut through some of this this morning. I can see right now. I'm not going to get through it all. It's okay, but we're going to get the main things, okay? The first thing I want you to see, there's four root causes. If you're taking notes, the first, here's the first root, first root cause. And that there is, in verses 11, 14, I see a preconceived notion about Jesus often leads us to feeling off the hook personally. Okay, notice the question, verse 11. Uh, are you, Jesus is asked, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate asked this question. Now, Pilate wouldn't have started with that question, but the reason why he does is because the the religious leaders have come to Pilate with their argument that Jesus is a traitor to Rome. You see, they didn't have the power to execute Jesus. They needed someone in the Roman government to pass judgment on Jesus. So they convened together, the religious leaders, and they said, here's our prosecuting argument. He's committed treason. He is a competitor to the emperor of Rome because he calls himself a king. In fact, the other gospel writers, and we'll dip in a little bit to the gospel narratives in other places, we'll put this on the screen. Luke 23, 2 says, this is what they had said to Pilate when they came and brought Jesus. We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ a king. In other words... Pilate, you better feel threatened because this guy is a threat to the Roman rule. Now, can you believe this? The Jews are saying to Pilate that this guy's a threat to Roman rule. They hated the Romans. They didn't want anything to do with the Romans, but this is their prosecuting argument. And if Jesus was guilty of treason, it was a, it was a capital offense, and he would have been executed by that alone. Uh, subversive actions were nothing new to this part of the world during Roman occupation. And in fact, not long before this, maybe just a few weeks before this, Pilate was made aware of an insurrection and a, a, a great multi, a great, uh, of great magnitude had occurred in the city of Jerusalem not many days before. There was this guy named Barabbas who murdered and tried to commit insurrection against the Romans, and he's probably 150 yards away from this very place somewhere in the fortress of the Antonia where Pilate and Jesus are standing. This Barabbas is off to the side somewhere in that Roman jail. And the wrinkle for Pilate as he faces this reality of to have to assess for himself who Jesus really is, he's got to figure out, is what he's being told accurate now, historians tell us that Pilate already had some trouble with the emperor in Rome for having come down too hard on the Samaritan people who were a, a, you know, kind of a half-breed of the Jewish people. Pilate, historically, was known for getting into trouble for his cruel actions over the people that he served. And so, this was really important for Pilate to get this right because if he got it wrong it was likely that he would be demoted from his position, his political career would be over. I mean, he's got to get this right. He's got to judge this situation accurately. So he asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And look at Jesus' response, verse 11. Yes, it is as you say. Uh, the religious leaders, I'm sure, are sort of rubbing their hands together at this moment because 
having felt the nibble, they were hoping now to set the hook. Pilate has now heard with his own ears that Jesus is a threat to Rome and must be dealt with according to the strictest measure of Roman law. Matthew's account leaves out some of the detail that other gospel accounts give to us. John's gospel in the 18th chapter gives us a little more of the backstory where Jesus explains to Pilate and, and actually asks Pilate, he says, is this your own idea or did others talk to you about me? Here's what I'm trying to get at. Preconceived notions about Jesus usually have their origin in unreliable sources. So you pick up a book someday that tells you that Jesus is really not the king, he's not the God, he's not God in human flesh, and you picked up this book at some library, or you went on a public television channel, and you saw the history of Jesus or the historical Jesus program, and suddenly you're thinking, oh, you know, maybe the Bible isn't right. And you start nursing this idea. Or maybe it was a professor in college who sort of shattered the bubble of your Christian experience that Jesus is just really no different than any other man. He was a glorified man. He was a great teacher. He was a miracle. He did all these things, but he really wasn't God. And you nurtured that. I've talked to people all my life who have these strong opinions about who Jesus is. And they got it from a teacher. They got it from a friend. They got it from a parent. They got it from a a, a co-worker, and they're going to throw out, or they'll never even investigate for themselves what the Bible says about Jesus. I, I remember once I was talking to an attorney at law, and he was giving me all these views about Jesus, none of which were correct. And I asked him, I said, have you ever read the Gospels? Have you ever heard the, have you ever actually read the words of Jesus? And he, embarrassingly, she said no. I said, well, I would encourage you, before you throw out the Jesus that I'm presenting to you, that you actually read the Jesus that's presented in the Bible. Hello? How about that? And there are people, I just, you know, there are people all over the place who've never read the Bible, never heard the words of Jesus, who have these preconceived notions of who He is. You know why? Because of somebody telling them something about Jesus that isn't true. It's amazing to me. It's amazing to me. And so people will say, don't follow this, it's a religious superstition. You know, this is just a bunch of nonsense, this whole Jesus thing. And furthermore, Jesus in John 18 explains to Pilate that his kingdom was not of this world. He was a king, yes, but not the king like the kings of this world. Jesus was no threat to Rome. Jesus didn't want to overthrow Rome. I mean, I travel places in the world where atheist countries where there's all this persecution on the church because they think the church is going to make Jesus the king or the emperor of their lives and, and they don't see that it's not a political kingdom. They're not trying to have political power. It's the same here in Pilate's day. It's the same in the days where Jesus walked this earth where people think that Jesus is some huge threat because he calls himself a king and yes he is a king but it's a king he's a king in a spiritual dimension he wants to be king of your heart and one day yes he will sit as king over the entire world and king over the universe but this is the king that we we follow this king jesus so it's probably here where luke tells us in luke 23 that pilate probably comes back out after his meeting with jesus in his private chambers and he says I find no basis for a charge against this man, Luke 23, 4. And furthermore, he says, 
the people protest. He says, he, they say, he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee, and he's come all the way here. If you know your Bible, you know that this was Pilate's brainstorm. He thought, oh, wait a minute. They said Galilee? Guess who happens to be in Jerusalem at this time? Herod Antipas who was the son of King Herod. Herod Antipas is the one that took off John the Baptist's head. You remember that? And Herod Antipas has been wanting to have an enter, enter, entertaining moment with Jesus for a long time. And Pilate says, hey, Herod's in town. I'll send Jesus over there. So he sends Jesus over to Pilate. Excuse me. Pilate sends Jesus over to Herod to see if he could find out a little bit more. And, and, and sort of, again, once again, we see Pilate wanting to, I don't want to deal with Jesus. I don't, just get him out of here. Let somebody else deal with him. In fact, here's the mentality of the root cause of preconceived notions about Jesus. Here it is. If you're taking notes, here's the mentality. Someone else should be responsible, not me. Someone else. That's what Pilate was doing. Get him over to Herod. Now, we know from, I won't take us all the way through that text, but in Luke 22 and 23, Jesus stands before Herod. And Herod is kind of hoping for a miracle. Like he wants to see Jesus do a little song and dance. He wants to be entertained. And Jesus says not one word to Herod. He is completely silent. Fulfilling Isaiah 53, he was silent before his accusers. He was like a sheep led to the slaughter. Herod is so incensed. How, how can this man not even defend himself? So he mocks Jesus. They threaten him. They put on a robe and they send him back to Pilate. And you can just imagine Pilate seeing Jesus coming back with this kingly robe thinking, oh no, now I've got to deal with him all over again. Which brings us to the next thing that we see in terms of a root cause of why people stay at a distance. And that is what we see in verses 15 through 18 and I'm calling this popular opinion about Jesus can distance us from taking responsibility ourselves. Popular opinion. Uh, suddenly, Pilate has a brainstorm. Uh, sometime after Pilate became governor of Judah, and no doubt after he had gotten himself into some trouble with Rome, he, he began a friendly tradition that bought some goodwill between him and his subjects. And you know what that tradition was? Each year at Passover, he would release a Jewish prisoner to curry the favor of the people. What a good guy. He's going to take one of their Jewish prisoners and let him go. And he knew this was the perfect moment to draw that card. He could see it developing. If he released someone that the crowd likes, assuming Jesus was liked by the crowd, he would be done and not have to deal with Jesus anymore. His assumption is that the crowd will support Jesus because just a few days before when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, they're all screaming out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the name of the Lord. Remember that? They're laying down palm branches. It's only the religious leaders that really wanted to get rid of Jesus. And so Pilate's expecting the people that are in that moment to sort of say, we want Jesus to be released and then Pilate would be free, right? Here's the mentality, if you're taking notes, the mentality of this root cause is that the crowd will get it right about Jesus. The crowd will get it right about Jesus. And there are a lot of people that today live the same way. I mean, there are people that judge what the crowd has to say about Jesus. And there are people even in the church who are judging Jesus by the crowd of culture. What is the culture? What is the big crowd of culture saying about Jesus? Well, they're saying a lot of things about Jesus. But probably the biggest thing I'm hearing today about Jesus is, is that he wants to give you the ultimate life of everything you want in life. 
And he's not going to stand in the way of your plans and you can choose anything you want to do and he's there to support you. He's there to give you the life that you want. Have you ever heard that? That's what culture says about Jesus. But that's not, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible says, I am Lord and King. I am Master. And there are some of us that are sort of listening with our ear to the culture. And we're trying to, you know, follow the Jesus of the culture. We're letting the crowd decide about Jesus. And so when Pilate says, who do you want me to release, thinking it's going to be Jesus, the crowd shouts out, Barabbas. I mean, Pilate had said, hey, do you want this murderer or do you want Jesus? And he's thinking, this is a slam dunk. These people are going to love Jesus. He's already heard about his reputation of him being praised as he walked into the city of Jerusalem. But there was this little interruption. Did you remember that as we read through that? This interruption that had come from his wife, which we'll get to in a second. But during that interruption where Pilate is cons- you know, having this conversation with the couriers that brought this message, the religious leaders are going through the crowd and maybe they're paying them off. Maybe they're, I don't know what they're doing, but they're convincing the people that they need to shout out that it, they want Barabbas, not Jesus. And can you imagine, can you imagine, who do you want, Jesus or this murderer? And the crowd says, give us the murderer. (laughs) That shows you the depravity of our human heart. That we would choose a murderer over the life of Jesus. Wow, that's amazing. Will the crowd get it right? Does the crowd get it right? Some of us are listening to the crowd. It might be the crowd of your workplace, the crowd of your uh, uh, neighborhood, the crowd of your culture. We're listening to the crowd. And when you listen to the crowd, you think that the crowd's going to get it right. It's amazing how wrong the crowd can be regarding who Jesus is and what to be done about him. Which brings us back to this third little root cause here in verse 19. And that's this thing that happens with Pilate's wife. And I'm calling this painful suspicions about Jesus can instill strong resistance to take responsibility. Um, This is really curious to me because she has this dream and she's troubled all day because of it. And she tells Pilate, Pilate, through this, you know, courier, don't have anything to do with Jesus. Leave this innocent man alone. Now, was this, was this a dream from God? Maybe. We don't know. What's odd to me about this is that if it were something that revealed the truth about Jesus, why wouldn't she have wanted Pilate and herself to turn the tables, use their political power to not only release Jesus, but ultimately sit under his teaching and be his follower? If she was that troubled by this innocent man, why wouldn't she do that? But then again, I think I meet people sometimes who kind of get it. They start understanding who Jesus is. In fact, I've met people sitting right here. There might be someone here this morning who, you know, you've been coming for a little while. This whole thing about Jesus seems very intriguing. Wow, you look around, the people, they seem to have their lives. They seem to have their lives together. Of course, you get to know people, you realize nobody has their life together. But there's still this sense of, you know, these are good people, I want to be around these people, and all this stuff is going on in your mind. And then, somehow you start getting really the truth about Jesus, and you start understanding that He wants to be Lord of your life, He must be Lord of your life. And so you start wondering, what is this going to mean for me? If I follow Jesus, you know, what will I have to do? Will I have to sell my house and move to another country? Will I, you know, what will, all these fears start coming in. And I've seen people push away from the table, watch this, because they're actually starting to get a clear picture of who Jesus is. I mean, it's, it's like they would rather stay in this fog of, I don't really know who he is. Because as soon as I see who he is, 
I suddenly start wondering what he's going to want to do with my life. Here's the mentality that keeps this thing alive. The mentality is, I'm just not feeling it. And until my feelings change, I'm just going to stay away. You ever known somebody like that? That might be you. Enough truth has got your attention. You've witnessed the love of Jesus, but you know that there's something more as you move closer. So you're just not ready. And by the way, it's okay to not be ready to commit your life to Jesus. That's okay. But what I'm suggesting is don't be like Pilate's wife or Pilate that just wants to keep pushing Jesus further out. Lean in and see that he has a love for you. That you, Do you have any idea how much he loves you? I mean, whatever he asks you to do is going to be amazing because it's based on his love for you. He has a plan for your life, yes. And it may not be a plan that just gives you, you know, happiness all through life, but there's going to be something so incredibly powerful and so meaningful to your life that you, you would have been a fool to leave it alone. And the enemy is so strong, he says, you know, you're just not feeling it. You should just push yourself further and further away from this. You might be edging closer to who Jesus is, and the last thing you should do is push him away or stay away. Don't let that happen in your life today. If you're listening today and, and you feel like you're at that crisis of faith moment where you're not sure which way to go with Jesus, can I just say, don't, don't lean away. Lean in and see what he has for you. See how much he loves you. There's one last little thing I see here in this text. If I can find myself where we are. And that is verses 24 through 26 Finally, Pilate, he sees that all of this has fallen apart. He, he has no idea what to do. So he, he pulls the last card out, verses 24 through 26. You know what he does? He, he washes his hands. When Pilate saw he was getting nowhere, verse 24, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. This was a common gesture in the ancient world of releasing all responsibility. It's like saying, not my problem. Not my problem. I don't want any responsibility in having to do anything with Jesus. You guys figure it out. Here's the mentality. I'm not responsible for Jesus' death. I'm not. I mean, Pilate's going, it's you guys that want him dead. So if you guys want him dead, all right, I'm washing my hands. You can have him. Not my problem. Not my issue. I'm not sending him to death. You guys are. You know what? There's a lot of people in our world, and maybe some people sitting right here today, that somehow don't realize that it was all of our responsibility for why Jesus died. I mean, really, until or unless you come to that conviction in your own life, I, I don't think you can really be a Christian until you see the debt that you owe, that it was your sin, my sin, that put Jesus on the cross, that we are all responsible. And that's when we come to that moment of, it was my sin? That's why Jesus died? Someone recently told me that was the turning point in their spiritual journey when they realized that Jesus died for them. He died as a substitute. You know all the people driving by this church this morning, people out in our community, people that we know everywhere that don't have a relationship with Christ, not one of them woke up saying, it was my sin that put Jesus on that cross. Because everybody says, I'm innocent. I've been, I talk to people all the time. I have a friend who used to tell me all the time, look, I, me, and, me and the man upstairs, we're on good terms. 
going to do anything to make him upset and he just kind of stays away from me. We got this arrangement. <laughs> really? You don't see that your sin put Jesus on the cross? He did it for you. And can you imagine the people's response? Let his blood be on us and on our children. Could there have been a more prophetic statement? Because in fact, it was. And it is on all of us.